You're listening to a social justice podcast hosted by Nicholas Sperling, brought to you by The Flag Shop, and inspired by a social justice coloring book. Hello, this is a social justice podcast. I'm your host, Nicholas Sperling, and today I'm joined by Will Woods for a conversation about Forbidden Vancouver walking tours. Can you introduce yourself, please, Will? Sure, Nicola. Yes. So my name is Will and I am the founder and general manager of Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours. I founded the company back in 2012. Our our goal is to share Vancouver history, the good and the bad, with locals and with tourists to explore the most interesting spaces and share the most interesting stories about our city. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining today. I was on one of your tours just a couple of weeks ago and had an amazing time. We were just talking about it before the podcast started and I can't wait to explore how this came to be and what you're trying to accomplish. And uh, my first question for you is just what is Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours and how did it come to exist? I kind of trace it back to a couple of experiences I had when I was younger that I think really planted a seed in me and inspired me to start the company kind of years later. And one of those was the Edinburgh Ghost Tours in Edinburgh, Scotland, Oh, where I went with my girlfriend of the time, now wife, Alicia, back in, I think like 2004, maybe around there. I was just really impressed with the, the quality of delivery, the quality of the guides, how they wove theatre into their performances. I mean, Edinburgh's got so much history. It goes back like hundreds of years and it's got these old crypts and underground spaces and stuff. And I remember being in this sort of underground cavern that was like hundreds of years old. And there were all these candles in there and they're telling a ghost story. And it, you, yeah, you could really feel a chill that go down your spine in that, in that, kind, of, um, that kind of space and ambience that they'd created. And I, I was really impressed. I remember being, stand, they took, took us to this one place that was like uh, this big steel looking gate that was i don't know 20 feet high between these in my in my, in my memory it was like 20 years ago but it was this huge gate by these two old buildings and they said oh this gate's here because you know when the plague came to edinburgh they locked all the plague victims behind this gate and then throw like bits of meat over the to over the gates to, to feed them but they basically all just you know died in there and you could hear their screams throughout the city thinking wow like you're standing <laughs> right next to this gate that's still here Right. Hundreds of years later, has this sort of macabre history. And so that really, I think that really struck me at the time. I thought, well, you can really create something just with guides or actors storytelling on the street. You can really create something doing that. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, a few years later, we moved here. We moved here in 2006 and we went on a trip down to Seattle, took the, um, the underground Seattle tour that I'm sure many listeners have, have experienced as well. And again, you know, I was, I was impressed, I think, both with, we, we had a great guide that day. It's, it's a fascinating history. They tell you about this underground world that exists in Seattle. Um, he was a very, you know, charismatic, funny man that led us on this tour. And I was also impressed by just the scale of business that they built and the number of people they have going through that, that uh, experience. Now it's become like a kind of must-do experience for people visiting Seattle. And I remember thinking, well, well, Vancouver really needs something like that as well. You know, we have a, we're a very similar Pacific Northwest city, a similar size, similar history. And there's not, I don't think there's, there's not, there wasn't anything like that in the city at the time. So I thought, well, there's an opportunity there. I was working uh, in, in a sort of corporate job for a company called Deloitte, who I joined uh, in 2002 in London and worked there for four years, then transferred to the Vancouver office in uh, 2006 and worked here for a few years. But I'd always thought to myself, I don't really want to 
pursue a career here long term. It was nice to, you know, to to move here with the company and they were great and you know, I have a lot of friends who still work there, but it wasn't really my thing. Mm-hmm. And I'd always had this desire to start my own business. I was really drawn to, you know, because of these sort of formative experiences I had, I was drawn immediately to starting something in storytelling, street performance, sharing history, exploring urban spaces. So it all kind of wove together into this idea of uh, a Forbidden Vancouver that I started in 2012. And it was just me on my own in a funny hat. I'm still wearing a funny hat today. <laughs> in a funny hat, you know, on the on the streets of Gastown talking about Vancouver history. And the first tour that I built was around Prohibition history. Uh, we still run a walking tour on Pro- Prohibition history today. I think it's a really little known and interesting chapter in Canadian history is the history of Prohibition that became part of, you know, U.S kind of folklore, national mythology around the Prohibition era and Al Capone and speakeasies in Chicago and New York City and, you know, all those, uh, all that sort of almost iconography of that era of the Tommy guns and the, all the sharp suits that the, the gangsters wore. And it just has not been part of Canadian, you know, national identity in the same way. But we had Prohibition here in, in exactly the same way. And we had, you know, we had massive corruption in, in government. We had bootlegging and, you know, huge uh, sort of underground crime figures making fortunes from selling illegal booze. There was a lot of smuggling of liquor down, you know, down to the States once Prohibition ended here and it carried on down there. This huge enterprise of rum running, which made some people a huge fortune. And I thought that's a really interesting history that I was interested to learn about. And I thought, well, I'd like to share that. And so that was the first tour. And since then, you know, we've done many, many different tours and experiences um, over the 11 or 12 years or so since then. Right. And you have quite a large team, it seems. Yeah. Now. So how difficult is it to find people who can bring that combination of understanding history and also being able to present it in a way that's really interesting? Yeah, I think it is in some ways it's hard. In some ways, I think we're really fortunate in that we get a ton of interest. When we put a job posting up, we have, you know, sometimes we'll have over 100 people apply for, a, you know, one or two positions as guides that we might, we might recruit in a year. I think there's a number of reasons for that. I think there's people in the city who love Vancouver and its history and love the idea of sharing that with, with audiences. And there's not many avenues for that. You know, there's a lot of people who are really into Vancouver and its history. And you can see that on Facebook and Instagram, on various Facebook groups that are out there of the huge number of likes and comments that posts get about, you know, archive photographs of the city, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. There's definitely a really big community in the city of people who really care about Vancouver and its history. I think there's people in that community who love the idea of storytelling and sharing that history you know, out on the streets. And there's also a massive acting community in the city. There's, as you know, a huge film business here. A lot of the time it's feast or famine for, for actors. Mm-hmm. And I think especially for theatre actors, it can be really hard trying to make that into a, a full-time career. And we provide, you know, steady, stable, predictable paid work for people who want to perform and love an audience. So I see those, I see our guys coming from those two different camps. And depending on uh, their experience, we might direct them to to one or, you know, a different tour. If you're more of an an acting background, then you'll you'll be steered towards the Lost Souls of Gastown, which is fully delivered in character. We only use professional actors for that experience. Some of our other tours, well, they're more like conventional walking tours. You don't need to be an actor. So, and I like having that that kind of breadth of experience and 
kind of aptitude in the team where people have diff bring different skills and different personal knowledge bases and different experiences they've had to, to the work. And we try and recruit people of you know, all genders and all ages, a, a diversity of ethnic backgrounds as well that, that reflects the, how diverse our city is. I think it's important as a company we, we, we represent that in our guide team. And why is it so important that we understand our history? That what, what are you hoping to accomplish with your organization and, and teaching people about that? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I, I guess you could, like, you know, there's plenty of historians out there who get, I'm sure get asked that question. Like, you know, why is history important? And there's kind of these cliches like, oh, if you don't understand your history, you're doomed to repeat it and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't think I have like that as like a kind of mantra that I keep in mind around why, like the purpose of showing Vancouver history. I just find it really interesting. I'm, I'm like, well, I live here and I'm so interested to know like what, what's happened in this place. I think if I lived anywhere, I'd have similar, I was interested in living in London in my younger years, like about London history. The lens I always have on building experiences is, well, do I find this interesting? If I find this story interesting, chances are, I think if we build a tour and include it, the audience will find it interesting too. So for me, I think it's more just about trying to understand the place we are, the the stories that have sort of come before us as, as the current residents of the city, why it is the way it is. I think you can look at any neighborhood in the city, any community in the city, and, and they've got a story that's pro probably interesting. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to get a sense of what this shift was like for you when you went from the corporate world to doing this type of work. What What is it that you were doing previously? Yeah, that's, that's it was difficult for me, actually, to begin with. Really, really hard. Um, I was working for Deloitte in their risk advisory practice. I was a senior manager by the time I left. So I kind of worked my way up from like consultant to senior manager, um, sort of like non-financial audit work, assessing how companies are using technology to meet their various requirements on them from their own clients or from regulators. It wasn't really my thing. I kind of, started, you know, I was like left university at 20, 21. And I was like, oh, well, I need to get a job. This is, this is, seems to be a good job. It's in, you know, it's in London. It, I've, you know, it's a place with a, a company where you can, you know, progress and have, have a career there. And uh, I was kind of set on that sort of corporate career for myself, but I, but it wasn't the right fit for me. And it was quite evident to me early on that wasn't the right fit. I actually almost started a tour company in the UK back in like 2004 with a guy I was working with at Deloitte, oh, like wow. a, a bus tour company around the UK, but we didn't, for various reasons, it never, got, never, never got started. But um, I knew right away it wasn't the right fit. I felt like I was kind of, it was like a placeholder for me. It was, it was when actually my eldest child was born that that's when I thought, well, I was, I was about 31 then and I thought, if I don't start, if I don't try this, to try and start my own business and do this, start this project that I think is going to be really, really fun and interesting, I'm never going to do it because I'm going to, I could see it. I could see the car payments and the mortgage and, you know, mm -hmm. that, and then having those financial commitments of, uh, you know, as a, a parent in, in a very expensive city with, with children, I was like, the, the window's going to close and I'm not going to ever do it. So I thought now's the time I have to try. And my wife was extremely supportive of this. I can't can't give her enough thanks for everything that she did to me to help me, you know, pursue this dream. And she was um, a real rock through the whole process and an incredible advisor to me in uh, and you know, in soundboard for all these you know ideas and questions and problems that come up when you start your own company. But going back to your question, I think the thing that I found hardest was, you know, I'd been in this corporate world. And I was very preoccupied with my, I don't know if assumptions is the right word or fears of judgment from my colleagues, my former colleagues. 
and what they would think of me starting this company. And I remember when I, I, res when I resigned, I, t I was like the head of the department. He was a really nice guy. And I said to him, I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving. And I, he was used to people saying that and saying they're, they're joining a competitor or they're going to a client or, you know, some other corporate similar thing in a different place. And I said, I'm going to start a walking tour company. And I could see like his jaw almost hit the floor. And I think he said something like, um, oh, that sounds like really small fry. Or that sounds like something really like a, like a not, not worth doing kind of oh, uh, wow. sentiment. Mm -hmm. That was kind of his, uh, his instincts, I think, when he when he heard about it, and maybe I didn't do a good enough job of articulating my sort of vision for it. It wasn't just like you know he he was a really nice guy, but the, you know all the people I worked with, I felt like a I you know almost like embarrassment that like I'm I'm leaving this good this good job in sort of quotation marks to start this sort of frivolous silly thing that isn't going to go anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, and I carried that with me for a long time, right? like for for like for like a couple of years in starting the company, I felt like insecurity around it. And then now I look back, I think, why do I care what, you know, what a bunch of people who work at this company think about what I do? I'm, I'm proud of what we've accomplished and we've come a long way. And I, you know, anyone I, and I speak to people from time to time who have ideas for starting their own business. And I always try and be encouraging and share that my own story of going through you know, what it's like to, to start something very different. I didn't have really any background in in particular, um, apart from just, uh, you know, my own study around Vancouver history. I, I had enrolled in acting school for a year in the, in the evenings in Gastown to try and improve as a public speaker and as a as, and as an actor which is which was extremely helpful for me but yeah it took a long time to deal with that, that insecurity and I, I I sense that's probably true for most people starting their own company you know it's not so much the fear of failure it's the fear of other people's judgment about the you know the potential for one to fail doing it you know interesting yeah I, I sort of have a different experience myself because I started a company when I was 21 and um, that was sort of viewed as an incredible feat, right? A little bit of a different... Um, what, what was the company? A construction company. Oh, right. So, I, I, and I still run it. It's uh, NES Design and Construction. I do residential renovation work. Oh. And um, that's something that I've been doing on and off over the last uh, more than a decade, I guess, at this point. But it was more when I started this role at the flag shop as a social justice ambassador that I, I got the judgment, right? Because I right. was leaving construction. I was leaving this industry where you can make a lot of money if, if you're committed to it. And I just went, it's it's too hard on my body. And um, I also was doing so much advocacy work that when someone said, I'll pay you to do advocacy work, I went, oh, well, okay, now I can really ramp things up and, right. and do even more. So uh, no regrets, but uh, it's sort of, I'm seeing parallels and differences in terms of, I understand what it's like to be judged for moving into a different role. Um, but it wasn't for starting a company. It was actually the opposite. It was going yeah. into employment for someone else. But maybe the common thread there, just reflecting on what you're saying, it, it's not. maybe it's not so much about the changing of the role. It's about giving up income. Yeah, you know? I think that is. Because we live, in a, we live in a very expensive city. We live in a, you know, we live in a, a capitalist system, right? Where one's income is seen as this sort of, you know, like, it's like status symbol. And you know, I worked away at Deloitte for years and went up, you know, moved up the ranks to CD manager. And the next step was to was to try and make it a partner, which I knew I didn't want to do. But I think the idea that you, that somebody would reject the opportunity to make partner, which is a very well paid position, to go and to go and like walk around outside telling stories about Vancouver history. Maybe maybe it was the the income sacrifice that was the that prompted those insecurities in me. Maybe and then maybe it's similar for you. I don't know if that that resonates. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. I, I think. I, I make a little bit less, not not too much, but definitely when you look at that position of a social justice ambassador as opposed to 
someone who runs a construction company, there's a, a, a much higher potential to earn money in the construction industry than there sure. is doing something like this. But um, this is just something that I'm much more passionate about. And it sounds like you feel the same way about these walking tours. It's not always about money. Sometimes it's just about being able to enjoy life and what you're doing. Yeah, I think, you know, being able to sort of express your identity through your work is really important. And work's a big part of your life. It's like hours a day, most days of the week. Mm -hmm. And I think I've found part of my identity through my work with Forbidden Vancouver that I'd never really felt, I never really felt I fit, fitted in before, you know. Mm -hmm. And I imagine there must have been a huge learning curve when you switched industries and started doing this. And obviously you had an interest in history, so you probably knew a lot already. But what was that learning curve like? Uh, I think it's probably a cliche that anyone who starts a business you know, makes tons of mistakes and spends loads of time, wastes loads of time on things that they shouldn't have done. <laughs> and which I definitely did. I think it was actually less around the fundamental work of the company of building and leading walking tours. Like I did, I worked pretty hard in like an acting school, in, in like learning about public speaking. Um, I was doing tons of tours myself personally, so I was getting a good feel for what worked, what didn't work. I was doing a ton of reading on Vancouver history. So I quickly like ramped up really fast on my learning about the history of the city. So that I felt fairly, fairly quickly. I felt pretty comfortable with, but the running of a company, I definitely made some big mistakes in how to run a company right. that I, I'm sure I continue to do, you know, because <laughs> you want to, you want a tour company, like you 50% run a tour company and you 50% run an online marketing business, trying to get people to yeah. buy tickets to the tour. And like, I never, I never went, you know, studied marketing. I never, I don't have any certifications or qualifications in digital marketing. I have an agency now that we work with, which is invaluable. I also have a marketing manager, Sasha, who's been incredible for us as well. But it took a lot, long time to grow the company to be big enough to, to bring in resources to help. And for a long time, it was just me doing everything and making ridiculous decisions. Uh, a lot of the time that meant I burnt through tons of time trying to fix things that I'd got wrong, like, you know, but bookkeeping like why didn't I hire a bookkeeper right away what was what was I thinking <laughs> trying to do it myself you know without any training in bookkeeping but uh I feel I learned a lot of really important lessons I feel now we're in a really good place as a company we've got a really good team certainly the last couple of years coming out of the pandemic have been really I feel like it's really getting into a place where I'm not so hands-on myself I can be more involved in planning and decision making and and, and supporting supporting the guides rather than being like knee deep in every single detail all the time, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And and speaking of teams, I, I took the Really Gay History Tour a couple of years ago, and I, I highly recommend that to our audience. I'd, I'm not sure if I've mentioned this, but we host this podcast on a site called fabulouslyqueer.ca. So oh, okay. a bit of a tie yeah. in there, right? And I know that that was created by Glenn, uh, is it Takat? Takat, yeah. Uh, so it's, it's not necessarily your tour, but since we host the podcast on this website uh, and we have a fairly large queer audience and I'm queer myself, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you to explain how that tour came to be and, and sort of what it's all about. Sure, yeah. So Glenn joined Forbidden Vancouver about six years ago, six, maybe going on seven years now. Uh, it's, it's a fantastic guide um, and was leading, I think, a couple of our walking tours for maybe a year or two. And then approached me and said, well, we need to do a walking tour on gay history. And I'd thought, I'd had this thought for a while about doing a walking tour on gay history. And I'd actually talked to a previous guide who identified as gay, who'd had a similar suggestion, but wasn't really 
in the right place in their life to be able to actually go out and, and, and build a tour. Maybe didn't even really want to do that. It's a big undertaking, right? So, but the idea of it, we we were both really keen on. So from quite early on in the company's history, that this idea had been percolating about a, a walking tour on gay history. And so Glenn approached me and said, well, you know, we should do this walking tour. And I was into it right away. And it was evident to me that I'd, I'm a straight cis man for me to build a walking tour on gay history. I'm, I'm not the right person to do that. I'm, I'm into supporting the process. I'm into our company having that experience in its like, portfolio of tours and experiences. But I can't be out there leading the tour myself. You know, it, it needs to be someone who's, who's, who, who's from that community. And, and Glenn identifies as gay and had a ton of enthusiasm to get stuck into doing the research. Glenn loves writing. He's a very skilled writer. So we thought, yeah, let's do it. Let's get, let's go, let's get into it. So I was kind of a, a coaching role for him. He'd never built a walking tour before. Obviously he'd led walking tours. So I was kind of a coaching role. We had this kind of brainstorming session at my house with on a whiteboard with the two of us. I had a couple of beers and spent a few hours kind of brainstorming what we could, what we could include in the tour. Our initial thought was, well, is there enough history in the city to actually fill a whole walking tour right. around gay history? And it quickly became evident, not only is there enough history, the hardest thing about building that tour, and Glenn will testify to this as well, is what to leave out because there's so much, there's so much history and not just, you know, the history of gay men, but the, the whole rainbow and all the different uh, groups that fit into that LGBTQ2 plus community or communities all have stories to share. And such a, a long history too. I mean, sure. part of it was two-spirit identities, which goes back thousands of years. Definitely, yeah. So Glenn, Glenn did a very impressive body of research uh, and continues to do so. He's become a real expert on queer history in the city. He's he struggled with what to leave out of that tour for sure. But what he's put in is absolutely fantastic. And I think one of the great things, or maybe the, maybe the one of the great things about that tour is that you know most of our tours. The era they're talking about, late Victorian era, maybe into the 20th century, up to, say, the Second World War, is usually as late as we go in terms of the content and the stories we tell. So there's no one around, right, you can really talk to about this. If you're talking about, you know, like pre-World War One, like everyone's passed away. So right. there's no one you can talk to. But queer history, like queer history is still being made. Mm -hmm. There's people, uh, people alive today with amazing stories to tell. And so... You know, Glenn was able to go out and meet people and do per like interview people himself and, and capture quotes and comments and perspectives that he's able to share on the tour. Like, you know, Jamie Lee Hamilton, who sadly passed away a couple of years ago, you know, he interviewed Jamie and was able to use that content to bring so much personality and firsthand uh, or, you know, first person uh, perspective to her story, which wouldn't, you know, wouldn't be the same just from you know, reading newspaper articles or, or that kind of thing. So that's that kind of personal, the, the personal connection he's, he's been able to have with people of great importance in the queer community has been really special. Maybe the, the greatest thing about the tour is how personally connect, connected Glenn is himself personally to that subject matter and how so many of the audience members who come are personally connected as well mm -hmm. and who are able to share their own stories on the tour about a myriad of different topics from you know, what the West End used to be like to the AIDS crisis to, you know, being a member of the United Church on Barrage Street when the first ordained outwardly, you know, gay minister in the whole country was the minister there. 
you know, these are these are personal stories that that are really meaningful for people. And when they're able to hear those stories or share those stories themselves, sometimes it's a really emotional time on that tour. Like sometimes pe people are in tears on that tour. You know, you might have a whole group who are really experiencing sort of a, a, a profound moment together. I think that's really special. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I have some personal experience with that because when I was on the tour, uh, a friend of mine brought up the fact that I'd run in politics. Oh, okay. so I ended up getting into a conversation with Will around that. And we had an email exchange after it. Exactly. Yeah. With Glenn. And um, it was really interesting because I didn't really think at the time about it being sort of history. Right. But right. my friend goes, well, you were one of four people who ran in the 2017 election who was trans. And it's the mm. first time any trans person had run for election um, at a provincial level. Wow. So fabulous. the four of us did, in in a way, make history. Yeah, but it yeah, was so yeah. recent at the time that we took that tour. It was within the last couple of years that I'm going, well, that's not history. That's that's present tense. That's just right. life, right? Um, but, a great example. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. incredible. And for those of our audience who are interested in taking the tour, like I said, I highly recommend it. One of the most interesting aspects of it for me was the the kiss in yeah yeah right. great story yeah great story and I, I mean I'm not going to spoil the tour for everyone <laughs> uh, you know, Glenn hates me out. Glenn hates me sharing bits of the tour yeah out, out in the world because he wants to he wants people to experience it and not to have you know spoilers out there so mm -hmm. I won't share too much about that but it was at the castle I guess castle beer parlor on I think on Granville Street and it's no longer there I think mm -hmm. it's where Best Buy is today. Um, but people are going to have to come on the tour and find out what yeah. happened. That's where it, that's where it was, but it was... Yeah, uh, we'll give you a little teaser yeah, there. there. You go go check was... out the tour. When it comes to crafting all of this information for the tours, how do you make sure that the information you're presenting is accurate and unbiased? Oh, I think unbiased, that's a really loaded uh, question. everything's going to be biased. I mean, like, how I, it's, not, it's not unbiased. It's got a lot of my personal bias in it, you know? Mm -hmm. It would be naive of me to think that I'm just, <laughs> just you know, telling completely objective factually accurate uh you know uh tours without any personal bias whatsoever obviously i you know if i'm doing the research and i'm writing it then my own personal bias creeps into those tours and the same with glenn for the really gay history tour and we are a progressive leading organization you know i don't i don't um i don't you know like apologize for that or try and hide that you know that's 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 the nature of the the company that we that we have and the, the line that we take in in our work but we we are thoroughly researched you know, mm -hmm. we, I, well, I, I try to avoid, I, I like, I like to subscribe to the idea of show, not tell. If I'm an audience member, I don't want to go on a tour and be told how to think, be told, you know, have someone else's political, um, points of view kind of thrust down my throat. I've not come to like a political meeting, you know, where I'm going to hear from like some candidate about like, you know, how the, how the world should be. Mm -hmm. So, so I, I, I make a, deliberate effort not to do that and i welcome people of all political persuasions and backgrounds to come on the tour and, and, and hear the stories uh of the, the stories of vancouver's past so but i but i do think you know i i like to i like us as storytellers in the company to 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 share the stories of vancouver's past and and to show people what it was like and then people can make their own conclusions and draw their own conclusions about the rights and the wrongs of of decisions that were made in the past you know compared to today for example uh, but I suppose it's in it's in the selection of the stories uh, and parts of each story that are included versus left out and the perspectives that are included and left out where my own personal bias likely creeps in. Right, right. You're going to tell the stories that you're the most interested sure. in. Sure, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. And can you explain what Project Sunrise is? Yeah, Project Sunrise came about a couple of years ago 
where it was kind of drew together a number of different threads in our company that I felt were I'm gonna I'm kind of mangle this metaphor, but they were kind of blowing in the wind, and I wanted them to be to me to do a, a better job around reconciliation, mm-hmm. to, to put it uh, succinctly, and I felt like our hearts and our intentions are in the right place from day one around this, but I think we suffered from a lack of knowledge and a lack of um consultation it was a it was a path where you know we we were doing land acknowledgements on tours but i wasn't convinced that we were doing as good a job as we could have done mm-hmm. um i felt like i was very uncertain as the company owner about sharing indigenous history related to indi- our indigenous communities and i'm you know i'm conscious that we're a private company uh, my, my wife and i own the company I didn't want to be accused of, you know, walking around telling stories about, you know, the indigenous communities of of our city, and be seen as trying to make money off what, what you know, is often very traumatic, part a very traumatic past, you know, um, at the hands of colonialism. And like, I'm a white guy from England. I'm like the worst person to be walking around talking about, you know, indigenous history, given that many of the people inflicting the most harm on local indigenous communities were from England. Right. So right. You know, bias, I guess. Right. So I, 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 but I felt, well, at the same time, well, I felt a responsibility to share those stories. And if not me, then who? Like who, who else is going to, I own a walking tour company. Like we should be out there talking about these things. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the reasons that our Stanley Park tour came about, the Dark Secrets of Stanley Park, because I felt like a lot of our tours were focused on uh, really settler history, in in and around Gastown, and I felt like I, I spent I spent a lot of time in Stanley Park. I think you know I'm not the only one out there who thinks it's an incredible asset for our city. What a spectacular place it is to go for a walk or a run or you know a picnic. I'm I I'm a keen runner and I've run a lot in the park and I have done for many years. And it 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 was as I started the company, it, it was increasingly apparent to me how little acknowledgement there is in the park of the indigenous people that lived on that land for so long, for like millennia. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it feels like a deliberate effort by the city to, um, to hide that history. Right. So, or, or at least there's a sort of uh, obliviousness to the responsibility to, to share it. And I think things have improved a little bit in that regard in, in, in recent years. I, I can talk about that in a moment. You know, running through the park early in the morning thinking, well, this is a really nice park. You know, I'd be interested to know what the history of this land and the people who've lived here. So that got me thinking of the idea of doing a Stanley Park walking tour. And I was helped by the work of a really, really incredible historian called Jean Barman, who wrote a book called Stanley Park Secret, probably about 10 years ago. She did fantastic research on the stories of people who who lived in the park before it became a park, mm. you know, their uh, expulsion by the city and the, the brave, uh, courageous individuals who managed to stick it out and continue to live in the park despite the full onslaught of the city of Vancouver trying to evict them. It, I almost feel like it's sort of a, a must read for any Vancouverite, that book. It really blows wide open a lot of, misconceptions i think that are out there about the park being this untouched rainforest that suddenly was made was made a park for the benefit of all vancouverites that's a story that people like to tell but the reality is a lot darker than that 
Um, there's also a book called Inventing Stanley Park by a writer called Sean Courage, which talks about the that exact myth about how it wasn't ever really an untouched rainforest. It was home to humans for, for so long. The huge changes that have been wrought to the flora and fauna of the park at the hands particularly of, of settlers since it became a park. So I thought this is interesting, this is interesting history that needs to be shared. And so we, I, we, we launched that tour about seven years ago and I struggled with the tour because I was, I felt stuck between wanting to share these stories, but feeling like I didn't want to be accused of cultural appropriation and appropriating stories of the indigenous people from, you know, the Squamish Musqueam slave tooth people that lived in Stanley Park, the village of Hui Hui and other villages around the park that uh, I didn't want to be accused of cultural appropriation of those stories, not just in the, in the tour itself, but in the marketing around it too. That was that was one thread blowing in the wind. I also that the the land acknowledgement, the how how we, what history we share and how we share it both in the tours themselves and in the marketing, and then just starting to look into um, you know what is good practice as a citizen of Vancouver and as a company owner around reconciliation, and it became obvious you know right away when I I was looking into this that you you know it's it's imperative to make uh, a financial contribution and to to step up and say no we're gonna help financially to the extent that we can we're a small family-owned company we're not tell us or you know some massive multinational but to the extent we can to make a financial contribution to non-profits and charities that are doing doing the hard work of supporting indigenous people in our communities who've been so harmed by colonization and particularly the residential school system and so this all these all tie together into what became project sunrise to try right. and do a better job around this and so we now have a we now have a, a donation program that a, a percentage of of revenue from all our all our public walking tours goes to support a number of different charities. Uh, and I was actually at the Urban Native Youth Association just a short walk from here earlier today, who's our partner charity for the Lost Souls of Gastown tour. Oh, okay. Yeah, and so yeah, I think that was that was something that I think was an important step for us to do. I'm I'm pleased that we do that. Our land acknowledgements definitely are much better connected to the work that we do now to the tours themselves it's not i don't know about you when you go to you know like a live performance or a theater and you hear this land acknowledgement and then it's like okay on with the, the experience that is completely disconnected from the land acknowledgement it feels very like a you know like very little thought has gone into into that and so i want i want to make sure that every guide on every tour gives a meaningful land acknowledgement that connects to them personally with the land that they're on the history that they're telling and the audience that they're with, right? And the, and people people are invited to really reflect during the land acknowledgement about like what they're doing and where they are, right? So it's more about focusing on the action of reconciliation as opposed to just paying lip service. Yeah, I think probably paying lip service is exactly what I didn't didn't want us to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I feel good that I think we've made some big improvements there. The nation program, um, but I still felt that we were struggling with how do we tell the world that we're sharing stories and histories of our indigenous communities without doing it in a way that's going to upset those communities or upset people that are concerned that indigenous people are given their own voices and they get to share stories themselves. So it was, it was evident. I, I wasn't going to solve that myself, that mm -hmm. question. I needed to consult. You know, we spent quite a while looking for who, who can help support us. And we had some really good help from Destination Vancouver and from, from um, the uh, Indigenous Tourism of BC uh, organization. It does a fantastic job supporting Indigenous-owned tourism businesses. And they had some good resources for us to help us. 
And eventually we, we were referred to um, Hereditary Chief Ian Campbell of the Squamish Nation, um, with thanks to the uh, Squamish Lillowak Cultural Centre, who actually puts in contact with, with uh, Chief Ian Campbell. And he held a uh, workshop for us. We invited some other tourism companies that we're partners with as well to come and hear from Ian, uh, who has a long history working in tourism, as well as um, you know being a leader in the Squamish Nation. He's worked a lot with real estate development as well and, and helping the Squamish Nation uh, and more broadly the, all the local nations in some of their plans to to house their own communities and provide housing as well for the for the broader community of people in Vancouver. And he spoke and it was it was actually it was absolutely one of the highlights of my work in Leading Forbidden Vancouver to hear him speak about his people, the history going back millennia on this land, some of the legends, the perspective he had on how the Squamish nation went through and continues to go through colonialism and also the the, the incredible plans and vision that the Squamish nation has and the other local nations for the future for their for their communities was very very impressive and to be able to share some of those perspectives on tours and to say well chief ian campbell gave me permission to share this story with you that really helped close a gap that was i think was becoming for me the most difficult thing about running the company actually because mm -hmm. i felt the responsibility to act but i felt a bit paralyzed around it and he really helped show me a way like lit a path for me it's like this is, this is a path you can go on and we still share emails you know we're still in contact he's a, he's a really really nice guy and i'm very very thankful for the support he's given me right and i mean that kind of answers part of my next question which is around when you're in the process of trying to tell indigenous stories are you consulting indigenous people and and obviously you are and are you including indigenous people in uh forbidden vancouver walking tours by i don't, I don't know hiring them or or bringing them on to tell various stories absolutely yeah so we uh, last count i think we have three of our storytellers who identify as indigenous i think they uh, they're all matey mm -hmm. um we had a fourth who just moved to manitoba oh <laughs> but uh, but still works for the company in a kind of op op operations role so yeah we have indigenous storytellers in the team we don't have anyone who's from the squamish musqueam or slaywood tooth nations we're very open to recruiting of course from those communities and we always put that in our in our job postings Again, I think it just speaks to, and I don't think we're unique in this way, that having a diverse workforce is very, very important. Um, I feel a responsibility for us to have diversity in our workforce, and it also makes us a much better and stronger company. Mm -hmm. And I guess that leads well into the next question, which is, what is your hope for the future of Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours? Yeah, it's a funny question because I, I, I've just been going, I've been catching up with a lot of my guides. It's a funny thing, this work, because often as a guide, you're actually, you're working on your own a lot. Like mm -hmm. you might be doing the Stanley Park tour, but I might not see you for like weeks, even months. You go, you do your regular slot, you know, Stanley Park at four o'clock and um, I might see you and you have an office in Gastown, but you might not go to the office before your tour. Some guides do and get changed, some don't. So sometimes I go like quite a long time without seeing people in the team, and I, I worry that it can be it can be a bit lonely work. Well, even though you're you're there with a group of people every tour, in terms of seeing other people within the company, it can be a, if it, you know it can be a while sometimes. Some of some of the guys I see 
Like Glenn, for example, does a ton of tours. I see him all the time. But some of some of our guys might do like one tour every couple of weeks. So I don't see them that much. We we try and have team socials and that kind of things that all get together. But I've been trying to get around and, and see everybody recently. And I, I always find that when I speak to guys in the team, they always have the question of, well, like, how are we doing? Like, what's the what we got planned? Like, what how's it been going? Because if you're just doing your one tour, you might not see that bigger picture of, the, of how the company's doing. We've had a great year. We've had a great couple of years. I'm very thankful for all the support we have in the city. There's so many people out there who've taken like every one of our walking tours and experiences and speak really glowingly to their friends and online about our work. And I'm so thankful for the people that do that. Uh, we haven't got a big marketing budget and that word of mouth is like, is absolutely vital. And just that I, I feel really proud to have created something that people like genuinely feel connected to and feel they really enjoy and they, they, they seek out to, to spend their money on and, and, their, and their time doing that, that. That means a lot to me. And we've had a really, really great couple of years. I think we're, I, I'm really looking forward to next year. Uh, we've just got a brand new tour we've launched actually for the holiday period called the Holiday History and Hot Chocolate Tour, oh. which is a version of our Monumental Scandals Tour that explores the most fabulous heritage buildings we have downtown, like the the Hotel Vancouver, the Marine, we, have a, we have a private viewing inside the Marine Building. Finished up with a hot chocolate at Mink Chocolate, which is an award-winning chocolatier on on Hornby Street. I, this sale's been going really well for that already. I'm really excited for how that's been, how that how that's shaping up. I've always, always wanted to have a regular holiday period experience. So this experience, we're inside so much of the time, we can really run it in all kinds of weather because every stop's like undercover or inside, which is not the case of all our tours. Like the Stanley Park tour in a rainstorm, in November can be challenging. I bet, yeah. Right, but this tours, you know, you're inside so much that you can do it in, in, all, in all manner of weather, which is great. So I'm looking forward to next year. I think we're gonna, we've got an amazing team of guides. We've got a really strong portfolio of really well-tested tours that, you know, we've really fine-tuned the content on them. And some special events this year as well that we also are gonna keep going next year, which have been really, really popular. I was at last night at one of our most popular special events Secrets of the Penthouse at the Penthouse nightclub on Seymour Street. Okay. Which uh, has been there for 70 years. Mm -hmm. And we do uh, a night of history, jazz music, and Italian food huh. where uh, the club owner, Danny Filipponi, uh, who is just turned 60, he started working in the club when he was like 15. So he's worked his whole life there. His father and uncles opened the club back in 1947. Wow. Officially, it was actually running all the way back in the late 30s, almost like a speakeasy. And he does a guided tour inside the, the private spaces of the club that have been closed to the public for a long time. Talks about the many different people that have frequented that club over the years, from like Sammy Davis Jr. to Frank Sinatra to Sting to like Ray Liotta from the from Goodfellas. Uh, it's had a it's been a place that uh, so many different people have have been to over the years. And we also have the historian Aaron Chapman come, and I've, I've uh, partnered with Aaron on many different experiences over the years is a, he's a, a fantastic historian and, and also uh orator and so aaron wrote the book liquor lust and the law the history of the legendary penthouse nightclub he comes and speaks about its history dan is there who talks about the, the you know his family's connection to nightclub history which is really a fascinating story i mean it's it's a story really of uh, uh an italian family that came here all the way back um, I think in the 1920s and then these four brothers who went on to build this this sort of nightclub dynasty here in the city which is still being run today is really something it's truly unique like how many venues 
in our city who've been owned and run by the same family for 70 years. Yeah, that's incredible. None, mm -hmm. You know, and uh, we also get retired VPD cops along who used to raid the club in the 60s and 70s. In the 60s, when they didn't have a liquor license, so they do they do oh. dry squad raids. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we have a, a, a retired police officer, Grant McDonald, who's a huge guy. He's, he's in his 80s now, but he's like six foot five. And uh, it must have been really something when he walked in uh, doing a dry squad raid in the 60s and you all had to hide your liquor under the table. <laughs> right. You know, it, it, when that happened. Um, and then in the 70s, he would do undercover work there, spying on uh, you know mobsters who were like working out of the upstairs of the club. There was no gang squad in those days. Today, mobsters are, you know, if you turn up and you're a gangster in a nightclub downtown, the gang squad come and escort you out right away. But that wasn't the case in the 70s. So they were... You know, many underworld figures who kind of worked out of the club. Danny's uncle, Joe, who was the patriarch of the whole family, was sadly murdered there in 1983. Um, there was a vice squad raid there in the late 70s. The club closed for three years. As a result of that, the case went to the Supreme Court of Canada, where uh, the family actually won on appeal. And there was a devastating fire there in 2011 that almost burnt the whole place to the ground. So it's had a risk. It's survived a lot, and it's still, you know, it's still going. Yeah. We have uh, a fantastic jazz band called the Russell Schulberg Trio, who who rock on stage during the dinner, and we have an Italian dinner, spaghetti and meatballs cooked according to Mama Filippone's recipe from the old country. So we've we've done that over a hundred times now, wow. that night, and we we've sold out five years in a row, every single month. So we had a full house last night of about fifty people, and uh, I think it really resonates with locals. Who come? It's almost like people come to pay homage to the city's history and their own personal or family history. Where this was a place that Aaron likes to joke at the end of the tour. It's the only place in Vancouver you can go where you can be at family dinner on a Sunday and say, "Guess where I was on uh, on last night? I was at the penthouse." And your dad can say, "You know, when I was your age, I went to the penthouse." And your grandfather will lean over and say, "Penthouse." I met your grandmother in the penthouse. <laughs> no, nowhere else can you do that in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. So it's got a real special place in a lot of people's hearts. Uh, we also had a tour this year called The Last Bang in Town, another book that Aaron wrote about gang history, like street gang history back in the 60s and 70s. We don't really have this kind of street gang culture today. Everyone thinks of gangsters today as like driving Range Rovers and shooting each other in parking lots and stuff. But um, Something out of the wire. Yeah, like this was more like youth, like teen street hoods you know mm -hmm. fighting with each other and the most notorious gang was the clark park gang clark park's not not a million miles from here up, up commercial drive close yeah yeah and so they were kind of feared street gang and they they were blamed for there was a riot at a, a rolling stones concert in uh, 1972 they got blamed for starting this riot the exile oh. exile on main street tour they got blamed for starting the, the the riot that happened outside the stadium that day. It was really due to counterfeit tickets being sold and whatnot, but uh, they got a lot of notoriety because of that. And then, you know, they were kind of a, a crime a crime spree of uh, around the neighbourhood of, you know, break and entry, stolen cars, that kind of stuff. And it was probably very unpleasant to, me to, to come across the Clark Park gang in Clark Park at night. I don't think that would be that would not be a, a nice interaction. And they were definitely some tough tough young men and women in that in that gang but the city of the the vancouver police department really came down hard on them they actually set up their own gang they got like 30 of their toughest constables and dressed them in leather jackets and sent them to clark park kind of like undercover wow. to like beat up these kids and say like we're the new gang in town you guys need to beat it and um there's stories of this and, and they, they knew they were cops like the kids and they like these 
uh, these young kids, you know, 18, being grabbed by these three, like, like 30 year old men, having their like shoes pulled off them and their coat, mm-hmm. chucked in the back of a car, driven to the Fraser River, thrown in the river, and have the cops like shooting live rounds, wow. saying like, you better knock it off. We know, we know who you are, we know what you're doing. And these kids are having to climb out of the Fraser River and then you know, walk home soaking wet in the middle of the night. Um, so there's actually, there actually a protest march against the police uh, aggression in the neighborhood. I can imagine. In the like and it, it ended sadly with the police actually killing one of the Clark Park, shooting and killing one of the Clark Park gang members wow. one night. Um, we sort of brought the whole story to a close, really. And a lot of those, uh, the, you know, the, the gang kind of, uh, as time went on, kind of fizzled out and you know they the, these young people grew up and a lot of them went on to like quite serious criminal careers and spent a lot of time in prison Aaron wrote this book about this this I think fascinating and little known story of Vancouver's past the last gang in town and uh he's he interviewed some of these police officers and gang members and then we get two of these gang members uh Danny Mouse Williamson and Bradley Bennett who are now reformed characters and they're probably in their, they're in their late 60s now and they after after quite a long time eventually went straight and uh left their life of crime behind them and they come and talk about their their lives and what it was like being in that gang being you know what is what was it like being in prison as a clark park gang member and apparently you were you were untouchable in prison if you were in the clark park gang and everyone left you alone and there are people from a you know that uh, a walk of life that a lot of people don't get to meet on an everyday basis and it's really fascinating to provide the opportunity i think for people to come and share their story they don't they don't try and dress it up they tell the their take on what it was like to be part of that gang and have that that conflict with the police at that time so that's a, that's been a really popular tour as well that we've done. We've got one coming up. It's like fully sold out already. December third, backstage at the Commodore again with Aaron. Uh, he wrote the book Live at the Commodore about the history of the Commodore Ballroom. Mm-hmm. So we're doing a, a talk there and a guided tour inside the building and going backstage, which should be <laughs> should be a lot of fun. We've done that a few times. So yeah, we've got a lot going on. Our popular tour, most popular tour, continues to be the Lost Souls of Gastown, which is which is the one that I was. You were on, yeah. Weeks. I mean that that's really captured a lot of imaginations. I think, and I think it's that we have. The degree of theatre involved in that and that it's not really a walking tour it's more like a, a roving one-person play mm-hmm. through those you know back streets and alleyways of victorian gastown you know it's we're really lucky that that gastown was saved in the 70s it was originally demolished and it was saved and the the kind of priceless jewel that it is today that it's so it's been so well preserved and to to, to walk through there and what i my intention with that experience is that as an audience member you quickly forget that it's 2023 you're not there with someone, an actor who's like acting in quotation marks, but you feel like, oh, well, it's, it's like you're really there with someone mm-hmm. at that time talking to you about what it was like to live there and telling you their story. And when I, when I first created that experience, my in- this was back in 2012, my intention had been to create a Halloween experience and tell kind of ghostly tales in Gastown, wear a top hat, carry a lantern, have a theatrical air to my storytelling. But I just, you know, I'd just been through acting school for like a year. And I, I wrote the whole tour in that way of talking about like the Great Fire, smallpox outbreaks, unsolved murder, try and really evoke what it was like in Gastown, you know, back in the like the, the 18, late 1860s to, to the, you know, about 1900. Then I thought to myself, what if I really try and challenge myself as an actor and, and take this one step further? And rather than saying the fire swept down Water Street faster than a sprinting man, I was the man sprinting down Border Street and the fire was licking the skin off my back as I went. Mm. I thought it'd be a much more powerful and evocative way to present the story of the story of our city's earliest years. 
and it's really been i've been really uh, blown away by its continued success like it's you know it's like going on 12 years now and it's still still popular it still sells out we get tons of tourists in the summer come on it we've got an amazing cast of guides and, and storytellers who who lead that tour some really really talented actors we're very blessed in vancouver with the the quality of actors that we have here in the city um some of the acting schools the number of people who move here to act it's really it's really something so i feel blessed that we're able to tap into that that priceless resource that we have and that we can really bring that city's earliest years to life Mm-hmm. I, I mean, what I'm learning through all of this is that there's plenty more tours that I really need to check out. Yeah, yeah. You have to He's let me know when you want to come. Mm-hmm, <laughs> absolutely. The holiday one sounds amazing. I feel like I should see if I can get some friends. To yeah, yeah. 100%, 100%. One of the questions that I like to ask on all of these podcasts is what our audience can do to help. And it's a little bit different in this case because a lot of the time I'm interviewing nonprofit organizations sure. or local advocates. But what can our audience do to help preserve our history, do you think? It's a good question. I mean, I think, obviously, I'm going to say, come on one of my tours. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> come on all of them. But, um, and you for sure, you'll, you'll learn about Vancouver history coming on our tours. No question about that. I mean, so many people, well, I'm, I'm in this boat, right? I didn't grow up. I grew up in England. I didn't grow up here. So many people here didn't grow up in Vancouver and come here and like never really take the time to learn about its history. And I think they do have a responsibility when you move somewhere to learn about where you are and its past. And so we're, we're one one very accessible way you can do that if you don't want to buy history books and read them you don't want to go to the archives you don't want to go to you know maybe more dry talks that are out there about vancouver history i promise that our experiences are not dry you will have a fun time we're there to entertain and share vancouver history so that's to that yeah thank you so that's a very we're an accessible way to do that if you do want to if you do want to go deeper there are some amazing history books out there that are also a really really fun read and we're at, I think we're really blessed in the city right now with the crop of history writers that we have. Aaron Chapman, I've talked about, he's got five very fun and accessible and fundamentally interesting history books that he's published. Eve Lazarus is another history writer who's written some fantastic books on Vancouver history. She writes a lot and she also podcasts about cold cases in Canada. Mm. I don't know if you know about the Babes in the Woods story in Stanley Park. Yeah, it was an unsolved murder of two children from 1947. And it was thanks to Eve's tireless reporting on she was a, she she started her career as a journalist, which has obviously been very useful for her in transitioning to history writing, her her blogging and her podcasting work as well. She has a tremendous output that she has, and she really took on the mantle of the Babes in the Woods story and trying to solve this case. And last year, it, after it's, I guess that's over seventy years. Um, the case was finally solved wow. and they, they found out who the identity of these two children were thanks to the latest DNA technology and thanks to Eve for kind of keeping that flame alive and keeping that interest out there in the, in the, in the world about who were these two children that, um, yeah, they, it was solved. Their, their names were Derek and David Dalton. They were two young boys and no one knows who, who killed them. Sadly, they were left in Stanley Park. I think they were aged like 10 and 8 around there, those mm-hmm. ages. It's, it's a it's a it's a tragic tale, but um, Eve's Eve's work around it is absolutely fascinating. I mean, her podcast is amazing. Listening to the story of of the babes in the woods and and how it went through these different iterations of crime fighting technology, trying to find out who did it, until eventually, after seventy years, they had the technology to get the full DNA of those two children and then match match online wow. and find out who 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 they were. 
she has a book called Blood, Sweat and Fear about a guy called Inspector Vance, who was like a, a sort of coroner of the city for years back in the mid 20th century. There's actually an exhibition coming up at the police museum about Inspector Vance. And his story of like all these, it's like, I kind of never watched CSI, the, the TV yeah, show, yeah. kind of like a 1940s version of that. Okay. With like 1940s technology is kind of what he did. Huh. And all the cases he solved, people tried to kill him, people tried to blow up his car. And he's like, oh, whatever, I'll just walk to work today. And like he kept going, like totally unfazed. Wow. And all the cases he solved with using like very rudimentary crime, you know, like forensic technology. It's a really, really fascinating read. So um, Dan Francis, who's been writing history books for many years in the city. If you've heard of the book Red Light Neon about history of sex work in Vancouver. Oh, I, I do seem to recall that. Yeah. So I think it's, it's the seminal work on, on that uh, on that history. And it, it traces it all the way back to like Birdie Stewart with her bawdy house in Gastown in like the 1870s, all the way up to like, the modern day. It's a really interesting, really interesting read. Um, and how, 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 you know, various sort of the, the changes in social norms and policing have really persecuted particularly, particularly vulnerable people who work in the sex trade and, um, and what the impacts of that have been you know, right. and how that's really morphed over the years. But it, but it's always been a feature of Vancouver since like day one. And Bertie Stewart was one of the first residents of Vancouver, even before it was the city of Vancouver. So that's a really interesting. He's, he's got some, some great books on Vancouver history as well. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of really, really uh, incredible history writers out there um, that I I recommend looking up. Lanny Russworm, who's got the blog uh, Past Tense Vancouver, does a lot of research for us as well. Mm -hmm. Amazing researcher. And there's unearthed so many interesting stories, particularly of 20th century, that kind of interwar period of Vancouver, the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. uh, his, his blog Past Tense Vancouver, well worth a read. You can easily lose hours of your life in there reading all the different stories that he's he's put together. Right. Well, I'll, I'll do a little shameless plug here as well. We did an episode not too long ago about war oh, with okay. uh, Michael Kluckner. Oh, Michael Kluckner, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, he, he talked about what it was like to live through all the various wars right here in Vancouver. Right, it's a really right. interesting perspective as well. Yeah, he's a great historian. He's a great artist as well. He is, yeah. yeah. We're kind of getting close to the end of this podcast here, but I want to pass it over to you to talk about anything that we haven't already discussed that you feel like you'd like to bring up? Uh, I feel like you've really given me the opportunity to talk freely on my you know, my thoughts about the company and, and, and what we've achieved and where, we, where we're going. You can find us at forbiddenvancouver.ca and uh, you'll see the full summary of all our different tours and pricing and when they happen, etc. Uh, or you can uh, follow us at Forbidden Vancouver on Instagram or TikTok or at Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours on Facebook. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank it's you, Nicola. Great. Thanks for having me. And this has been a social justice podcast. I'm your host, Nicholas Sperling. Today, I've been joined by Will Woods from Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours, and we'll catch you in the next one. You've been listening to a social justice podcast hosted by Nicholas Sperling, brought to you by The Flag Shop, and inspired by a social justice coloring book.